Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of Behind the Microphone, with me, Hamish Percy. Today's guest is BBC Five Live's Chief Football Reporter, Ian Dennis. This voice. Oh, it comes in! It's a corner! It's a Rigi! Liverpool 4, Barcelona now! And Liverpool may well have produced the greatest European comeback ever! The greatest European comeback ever. It was great to talk to Ian in this week's episode and he gives a really good insight into his career journey and to football commentary and reporting, including a couple of really special European nights at Anfield. I hope you enjoy it. So Ian, growing up, was the dream always to be a football commentator? Yeah, it was. It was... um... (laughs) It was bizarre, really, because one of my teachers at school, uh, JT, an economics teacher, when he said, what what do you want to do? And um, he, he just basically <laughs> disregarded it. And uh, it was it was bizarre. It was, I don't know why. I don't know why I wanted to do it. But I used to I used to commentate playing Subutio with my brother. Uh, and I used to commentate in the we, my dad when we were young, would take us into the field and he'd be the goalkeeper and he would commentate to me and my brother to make it a little bit more exciting. So I don't know whether that has some sort of like had subconscious influence in me from a being a young boy, but I wanted to do it and always felt I could do it and never never actually thought that I would do it. So to be in this position is, uh, at times it's still a, pinch yourself moment when you're working with the people who, who you get to work with and the places that you actually find yourself in. And when did that initial break come for you into the world of, of sports media? Well, there's been, a, there's been a few before. I mean, I've been at the BBC now for nearly 25 years. Uh, but before that, I had a couple of opportunities, one with a company called Ring Around in Manchester in the late uh, 1980s. And that was a company that was a, an 0898 uh, tele- telephone information provider that people would pay about 30-odd P a minute to listen to you actually interviewing a manager or a player or giving them information. Um, and you think now that you can get your information for free, whether it be on social media or the internet, uh, it goes to show how far sports reporting's come. But that was a good insight. Uh, it didn't last very long. Um, I crashed the company car. Um and they made life a little bit awkward for me, and I left. And I remember the sports editor saying to me, you're about to make the biggest mistake of your life. Uh, but I've always gone with my gut, in- gut instinct. And at that time, uh, although I was grateful of the opportunity, and I was you know, getting out to do games, I was doing interviews down the phone, it was a, it was a breakthrough for me. But... It was it was difficult for me to, tra- to travel from Yorkshire to Manchester every day, working long hours, and I just wasn't enjoying it. And I felt it was the right thing to do. So I actually left uh, that company, um, went to work for the Inland Revenue for a short time doing corporation tax, and then I saw a job um, in Leeds for a company called, well, it was William Hill at the time, then they changed to IMS, interactive media services and they launched a, uh, so we did rapid race line rapid greyhound line rapid cricket line got to work with a great clive lloyd which was absolutely a, that was fantastic and then a, a guy came in called ian holding 
who gave me so much confidence and um, basically just said, you've got to develop your own style. So you take little bits from everybody else, but you've got to be your own man. And um, so I worked with with him and he launched a service called Team Talk that you look back now, there must be at least half a dozen people who came through that who've gone on to bigger and better things. There was a number of people uh, who went on to get a good grounding under the tutelage of, of, of Ian Holding, who then went on to do other things. I mean, uh, it was an experience of young aspiring broadcasters with a combination of experienced old hands. And it was the perfect mix. And it was great. Uh, it was it was great place to work, some great, you know, stories. And, um, and that was there for four years. And then I left there and went freelance to, for a time, went for a job at the BBC in the Northeast. I was told that basically I would get um, a three-month trial. And then in the first week of this three-month trial, they gave the job that I'd gone for to somebody else, which uh, flummoxed me a little bit um, and then thrust me really then into the, into the world of, of freelance because I'd left my full-time job, bit of a risk, bit of a gamble, uh, didn't initially pay off, but I think in, in, in hindsight it did because... I was able then to to meet further people, uh, get more experience, and um, and then ended up going to BBC Newcastle for a time, where then six months later, I was offered the sports editor's job. Okay, and when you went freelance, then was that that must have been still relatively early in your career? How how was that being freelance for that period of time? Well, I I um I. I'm a creature of habit. I need structure in my life. And I didn't like the freelance world because I never knew when the work was coming in. And I always felt that I could never turn it down. Um, but it was good in the sense that I did some news shifts as well as sports shifts. Um, and also I got to, to, to broaden my horizons in the fact that instead of working for, for BBC Cleveland, I was doing shifts at BBC Leeds, BBC Newcastle. So my name was, you know, was getting out in, in the north, uh, which was was good experience. So I think looking back, although I was I was bitterly disappointed at the time not to get the job that I went for, um I think in hindsight it, it helped me undoubtedly. And I kinda of want to ask you about establishing yourself at new patches and obviously you were at you were at BBC Cleveland, BBC York. BBC Newcastle how was it kind of establish establishing yourself at those new patches was it was it difficult it's never easy because you know that you're um, you can never establish yourself in 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 that situation it was more or less sort of like going in and doing the job to the best of your ability Um, it was very very difficult Um, but on the back of that I then got the Durham reporters job covering Durham cricket uh, for BBC Cleveland, BBC Newcastle, and and also look north in the northeast, so that was quite good uh, because then that gave me the stability that I think I need. And so there are some people who who the freelance world is is fine. It's just not for me. Um, but it it was it was good in that sense that all of a sudden I was covering Durham, um, traveling around with the players. Um, it was an interesting time because they were still sort of like trying to establish themselves. 
but I got to meet, you know, some really, really good players, real characters in the game. John Morris, uh, Paul Collingwood, who was just coming through at that time. Mike Rosebury, the captain, Simon Brown, as well as the coaches, you know, Norman Gifford and Jeff Cook. So I, I enjoy my cricket and I, I, I love traveling around watching Durham, but it didn't last for very long because when you mentioned Radio York, Radio York was a place where I went to in the late eighties just for work experience because I'd sent a letter to John Motson um, when I was a young lad, teenager, and he'd sent me this letter back saying, contact your local radio stations. And I bombarded every station throughout Yorkshire, grew up in Yorkshire. I went to North Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, even into Lancashire. I'd, I would send letters to everybody within a certain radius and one of them was a guy called Derm Tanner, who was the sports editor at Radio York, who responded. And I went in one Saturday um, because the crux of the letter from John Motson was, if you've got determination and enthusiasm, then you will succeed. And now when I get bizarrely asked for sort of like advice, I just basically repeat what John Motson said to me. Determination and enthusiasm. Absolutely vital because you will get knockbacks. And those, those when they, when you get those rejections, and it doesn't matter if, if you're not actually into sports broadcasting, whatever career you want to go down, if you've got determination and enthusiasm, it will give you a fighting chance of succeeding. And I contacted Radio York and a guy called Derm Tanner was great. Uh, didn't realise then in 1988 how much of an impact he would have on my career because... Um, Eight years later, he has um, su subsequently he'd, he'd got me in for a job that I knew I was never going to get. But he gave me a board experience at the BBC for a, a, a Yorkshire cricket reporter's job. I knew I wasn't going to get wasn't going to get it. But what it did, it gave me an experience of getting that that interviewing uh, a feel for what it's going to be like when you're interviewed for a job at the BBC. And unbeknown to me. Derm, eight years later, had recommended me to the sport, the station manager at Radio Newcastle. If you want a hard-working young man, then he's the lad you need to get. And that's when the, the job offer came in. Got the sports editor's job at Radio Newcastle, which was a huge step up. I mean, it's a huge patch. Two great clubs in Newcastle and Sunderland. And um, and then within weeks of, of arriving, they've signed Alan Shearer. And you're thinking, wow. And, uh, it, and Newcastle then, Kevin Keegan, Kenny Dalgleish, Rude Hullet was two years of a, of a great learning curve for me. And then Derm actually came back for me again. Uh, to, to, he took me to, to BBC Leeds, which has had a real um, breeding ground, if you like, of commentators who've gone on to work for the BBC network. Um, very, very fortunate in that BBC York, BBC Leeds connection, you've got Miles Harrison, Rob Hawthorne, John Champion, Peter Drury. So you're following in the footsteps then of uh, of some some great commentators. So, um, yeah, and I had four years at BBC Leeds. That's fantastic. It was, I thought it was brilliant advice what you said about how if you've got enthusiasm and determination, well, that's that's what you need to succeed. Um, when you were at those patches... Did you find it, I know now you're a national reporter, was it easier to establish good, good relationships with the players and managers when you're a regional reporter 
as opposed to now when you're a national reporter? Funnily enough, um, I've only... I, I remember asking David O'Leary for his number and he, he didn't give me he didn't give me his number. And I actually, I found it... It was easier at Radio Leeds to meet the players because you would see the players every time you went up to the training ground at Thorpe Arch. This was at a time before... Premier League clubs detach themselves away as they do now. So you would see the players on a on a regular basis. And even if you didn't um, interview them, you would be able to speak to them, you know. So I was able to look back at that Leeds United side and I'm still in contact with a number of the players now. And I was able to form relationships with them um, through familiarity, if you like. And then, then, then you build the trust. Trust is something that's very hard to gain, very easy to lose. Um, but it was only since when I left Radio Leeds and went to Five Live, and one of my good friends is Paul Jewell, the former Bradford manager. And Paul Jewell said to me, he said, in your position, you need to be asking managers for numbers. And I, in the end, I mean, I'm, I think I'm quite a shy person. I didn't have the... the um, I wasn't bold enough to say, oh, can I have your number? So I thought, oh, he said, no. He said, in your position, ask for numbers because it suits the manager to give them your number as well as you have theirs. And I've started doing it now. And now I've got a lot of numbers of, of managers. But at the time, I didn't do it. And I think had I done it, I had a good relationship with the chairman, Peter Ridsdale, and I got to know the players. And since I've got their numbers, and I've, I've stayed in contact with, with a number of the players from that, that particular squad. But I wonder if I'd done it at the time, whether I would have got uh, more stories. But at the time, I was probably more of a commentator than a reporter anyway. But it's something that I would definitely do now. I would definitely I would definitely ask for numbers. Anybody's, anybody starting out, you know, any chance I could have your number? The worst they can do is say no. Definitely. And on that, uh, on that trust thing, you said, like, it's... it's uh, trust is very hard. Oh, wait, sorry. Trust is hard to gain, but very easy to lose. I heard you actually have a debate with, I think it was Clinton Morrison, Mark Chapman, and Andrus Townsend, where Andrus Townsend actually stated that interviews are almost pointless because players don't want to be tripped up, and that's why they're saying the same cliches over and over again, and answers are becoming robotic. When you know players are going to give you cliched answers, does it make your job? very difficult and was it different back then when you had more trust with the players as opposed to now when you don't have as much trust I think it's it, it's different I think where Andros was coming from I think the mechanics of the different mediums he was talking about the England national side and I think it's a different ball game when we do the radio interviews it's one-on-one -on -one. the television there might be two or three tv crews it's still quite intimate I think when you get in the England setup, invariably the press pack, the written guys, there must be at least 10, 12, maybe even more around one person. And when they're asking that one player a question, you can it can come at different angles. Whereas, uh, and I think Andros was feeling that from his point of view, when he was an England player, he believes that the press were out to to trip him up. My impression is, is that I've never met a journalist 
covering England who's gone out to trip up a player. What it is, though, is that sometimes they might hear something. And when I'm, say I'm interviewing you now, I will go in with three or four set questions that I want to ask you. You might take me off on a different tangent. And, but I'm, I want to come back to one of my questions. And sometimes if I don't have the presence of mind to, I try and listen to what you say, but I might miss an interesting thread because I'm so preoccupied with, I want to ask you this. Whereas in the written press, there might be one guy who picks up on what you've just said and think, well, that's an interesting line. Elaborate a little bit more, Hamish. And then all of a sudden, it, it, I don't know. I just think I didn't, I didn't, it was an interesting debate. I didn't agree with, uh, with, with Andros from personal experience. He, he, he will, he will have a different, uh, a different feeling altogether from his time, you know, with the, with, with the media. But I do think that the, um, the England players now are less guarded because I think barriers have been broken down. And I think um, in the past, the media, not just the written press, the media were a stumbling block for England going into a major tournament. And I think those barriers were, were taken down a little bit the way that Gareth Southgate and the FA media team approached it all going into Russia in the World Cup. And I think as a result of that, uh, that was one of the key factors, well, not one of the key factors, but it was one of the contributing factors to a more harmonious atmosphere. Definitely. And, and I thought that's what made such an engaging debate because there almost is this perception that the media are trying to always catch out the players. And especially a few years ago, there was. And I, well, I know uh, Mark Chapman even said during that, it's the responsibility for the media to not try and trip the players up. I think he said something like that. But there might there might be times though, Hamish, where... For instance, um, Jack Wilshire, I recall going back a number of years, was caught. A, there was a story. It was an embarrassing story, and I remember saying to to, to Jack Wilshire before we started, I said, "Jack, I'm going to have to ask you about this." I think if you're honest with a player, um, I mean, even going back a long time ago, George Graham um, was he was linked when he was the Leeds United manager to going to Tottenham. And I said to, just before we started, I said, George, by the way, I said, I am going to have to ask you about this. And um, he said, OK. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll leave it at the end. And I said, and finally, George, what about the stories about you going back to uh, to Tottenham Hotspur? And he said, all I'm doing is concentrating on being the manager of Leeds United. And in fact, Leeds were playing Tottenham that weekend. And uh, I actually said, and after the weekend, to which he replied, don't push it, son. And you can only ask the questions. If you ask the questions, the players or the managers or whoever, the officials, they have got the right to say, well, I prefer not to talk about that. In fact, I've seen a number of players do it. Uh, young lads, I remember uh, Jaden Sancho in a press conference for England. I prefer not to talk about that. You can only ask the questions. And then it's how, how the people who you're speaking to, how they choose to, to respond. That's 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 so that seems so true as well. Especially if there's a big news headline, you you have to. It's your then responsibility as the reporter to ask that job. I know in rugby when the, that Saracen scandal came out a, a year or two ago, the 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 pre-match press conferences and the post-match interviews and everything were so awkward and excruciatingly awkward to watch. But of course, the reporter is going to have to ask about it because it's the biggest scandal in rugby history, basically. But um. 
but yeah, moving on to your commentary side of of the job, because obviously that you have the reporting and commentary. You've had some truly incredible games you've commentated on, and well, Liverpool's comeback to Barcelona is the one that springs to mind. But what I wanted to ask you about it might sound almost a bit silly, but how do you keep calm and measured during moments like that in order to describe fully to the listener what's going on? You might you might say that I don't. Uh, it's very very difficult because I mean I there's been occasions where. I've got carried away with, with the emotion. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember a Dort, Liverpool Dortmund in 2016, the Europa League tie. It was a very emotional night um, because it was very, it was close to the anniversary of Hillsborough, and I still remember to this day they played "You'll Never Walk Alone" ahead of kickoff, and uh, it sends a shiver down your spine because it was that powerful the song that night you had the Dortmund fans singing it as well um they actually turned the music off you know the, the the actual record and just let the supporters sing it and it boy even thinking about it now it 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 really does pull on the heartstrings and that that game was more of a helter skelter game than the Barcelona match because Dortmund had gone 2-0 up early on. Liverpool got a goal back. Dortmund went and got a third. And Liverpool then scored three goals in the second half, concluding with a with a, a last-minute goal. And the voice went. And um, it's something that, it, certainly in the early days, the voice used to crack. And it was a bit of a problem for me. And um, there's been a guy called Rob Nothman who's got such a forensic ear. I call him the guru. He's helped out so many people, not just commentators and broadcasters, but uh, players who are wanting to become broadcasters. He, he'll, he'll give many of people a lesson. And that was an issue for me, my voice cracking. And it, it happened that night. And it's something that you, I'm conscious of, but you just get carried away. And um, I've said many a time, I think of a, of a blind friend who's no longer with us. Um, and I just try and relay if he was sat next to me, I try and relay what what I see. And sometimes you do get carried away. But the Anfield, for though that night, the Dortmund game, and also the game against Barcelona, is it, it's a cliche to say that European nights are special, but they are. And actually, the Barcelona game said to Alan Shearer, who I was working with that night, because obviously they were 3-0 down from the, the first leg, and you're always conscious that if Barcelona scored early on, we still have to do the commentary. So I said to Alan, I said, look, second half, if it's not going Liverpool's way, I said, we might just have to go a little bit left field to try and make it entertaining, still try and keep it an engaging listen. I said, but if there's one place where it could happen, it's here. And uh, little did we realise that they were going to produce such a, a, a stirring fight back that they did in an atmosphere that was just sensational. And even Alan said that it's the best atmosphere he's ever experienced. It was truly, truly incredible. That brings me very nicely onto the next question I was going to ask you, which was on the flip side, when a game could pan out as, as dead, like if Barcelona were to score in that game, how do you keep listeners 
engaged, especially over the radio, in a, in a boring or dead game? Well, when I was at Radio Leeds and I worked with Peter Lorimer and Norman Hunter on a regular basis, you had that, that natural rapport and that, you know, camaraderie, if you like, because you've travelled up and down the country together. You've travelled across Europe together. We used to room together. Um, and I knew that if I made a mistake, that they would automatically cover my back. When you go to Radio 5 and you're working with different summarizers week in, week out, that to me was a challenge to begin with. I found it quite difficult. You know, you're working with some Jimmy Armfield, Graham Taylor, Mark Lawrenson, Chris Waddle, different people every time. And I felt I had to prove myself to them each and every time. Now, when I work with somebody new, and because I've worked with those those guys on a regular basis, when I work with somebody new now, I actually say to them, by the way, if the game's not going not gonna to be very good today, don't worry, I might go left field. Feel free to take the mickey. You know, I don't, I don't mind. Um, but we, we might need to do this. Um, so I've said that to a number of people, uh, you know, who you work with for the first time, just to think, what's the guy on about? Because all of a sudden you might need to start having, you might focus on a guy in the crowd. You might, there might be a particular thread that is developed through the game, a talking point. So, um, yeah. I mean, I remember Radio Newcastle FA Cup semi-final against Sheffield United. One of the themes of the commentary with John Anderson, who was my sidekick in the North East, was Battenberg cake. You know, and even even now, I think there's, there are a couple of people who uh, we're, we're close with still talk about the Battenberg cake. So it's just little, little things that come into your mind. But if you've, if you've prepared your, your, your co-commentator that we might need to have a bit of fun, then, because um, that's all it is, you've just got to have a laugh. You can't take yourself too seriously. That was what I was going to say next. Again, I was going to say, is your aim to have a bit of fun with it as well as deliver a serious commentary? Is your aim to have a bit of a bit of fun? When the when the time's right, my old economics teacher, JT, used to say, in order to get on in life, you've got to learn to laugh at yourself. And if I was you, Ian, I'd be hilarious. And um, I've, I've never forgotten it. And um, at the end of the day, you've got to, I think, a key, a, the key to commentary is... You've got to inform the listener. Um, but at the same time, you've got to try and entertain the listener. Now, there might be occasions where the game is so tense and it's from end to end, that you haven't got time for any a light-hearted moment. But when the game's that bad, and I remember, I think it was with Matt Holland in 2006, it's been voted as one of the world's worst games for the World Cup history was Ukraine against Switzerland. It was shocking. Nothing happened. Even the penalty shootout was dire. Then all you can do is laugh and because there was just nothing happening. And you and you know, and we talked then about let's hope that it does go to a penalty shoot and even the penalty shootout was dire. So I think sometimes you're left with no option but just to try and see the funny side. Okay. And and do you find there are any difficulties with the job? A lot of people and a lot of people listening to this will think it's the, the dream job, but what, what, are the, what are the challenges of it? The challenges at the minute during this pandemic are the fact that there's no supporters inside the stadium. That's hard because you need the supporters. Um, 
because that atmosphere you can use to ride along with your voice. That gives you the edge to the commentary. You know, when you've got a great commentary, a great atmosphere, you can then provide the commentary to try and match it because you can your voice can try and cut through it and you can sometimes just have a little bit of a breather and let the crowd's atmosphere take over. So that's that's one of the biggest obstacles. You know, at times it can feel so flat without the supporters. Um and also the fact that we're, we're socially distant as well, because sometimes your commentator might just give you a little dig in the ribs as if to say, oh, by the way, something's about to happen. You've got that interaction when you're working two metres apart. It's amazing at the minute, the understanding that you have with so many that you, you don't even look at them. You, you're talking, you stop and you know that they will come in. Um, you know. Pat Nevin, Chris Wardle, Stephen Warnock, they automatically know when you're going to finish Mark Lawrence and, and, and you're able just to to, to continue working. So um, that at the minute is probably one of the hardest, that the, the biggest challenges to overcome during this period. Well, that's it for series two, episode four of Behind the Microphone with me, Hamish Percy and BBC Radio 5 Live's chief football reporter, Ian Dennis. As always, if you like the episode, please share it and subscribe, and I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.